Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hadjassad and with me is Benjamin Hunting. Say hi, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings indeed. Ben and I are the sort of people who, what do we do? We like to talk about cars and drive cars. We're the sort of people who go around roundabouts a few extra times just to make sure we're having a good time. What do you think, Ben? That's a good idea. I don't know, man. I'm I'm kind of not sold on roundabouts, but that's kind of a topic for another podcast, I think. But what you were... were called. What if they were called traffic circles? <laughs> I don't think you're going to be able to sell it on me. Um, mm. I just, you know, it's it's not surprising to me though that traffic circles are fresh in your mind, considering where you spent the last week. I was across the pond, but the pond was more of an ocean, which was weird. Um, <laughs> I was all the way in the UK driving some uh, very very English cars which are the Mini Cooper Countryman. What do you think of that? I think that the Countryman is not the largest uh, Mini that's ever been built, but close to the largest. Am I correct? It is the largest Mini ever built. Ah, okay. So The I'm largest just... Mini ever. Um, and how does it drive? So, you know, we've seen Minis progress. I don't know if progress is the word. We've seen Minis get bigger over the last decade as uh, BMW has kind of pushed the brand into as many niches as they can. And uh, what's it like to drive this this ultimately huge uh, Mini? First of all, you're, you're, you make a really good point with, about um, the Mini brand right now. It's, um, it's all over the place, right? It, it doesn't seem like it's a small, compact car that it used to be. Instead, it seems like Minis have grown up um, in maturity rather than being these goofy little cars. And occasionally there's some personality to these vehicles, but uh, they've definitely grown up in size as well, trying to appeal to different customers. And I think that's always been the, the BMW way, which is why they have so many uh, like iterative versions of their, of their cars. But Mini's, Mini seems to be falling in that trap. But with the Countryman, I think they've got a truly different car than anything else they have in the lineup. And that's because it's a bigger, more um, practical and versatile vehicle. This is another one that you can get with all-wheel drive. The Clubman, I believe, is the first vehicle you can get with with uh, all-wheel drive. And the Countryman is the next. So that's what they've got now here in the lineup. Now, and, would, um, would you say it's it's comparable to a compact SUV? No, it's definitely more of a, like a subcompact crossover. Um something like the HRV or the Mercedes GLA. A lot of uh, many people have been using the in the Audi Q3 as um as sort of a, a benchmark or a rival, which is uh, which is very interesting because as you and I both know and probably our listeners know, that's um a premium vehicle, a luxury car. And many I don't think has the name uh, the brand value to con- to compare themselves to, to luxury cars. What do you think? Well, they might not have the brand value, but they definitely have the pricing. Um, Minis have traditionally not been the most affordable cars in their class. If you were to go by size or features, there was always that built-in uh, little something extra you had to pay to drive a Mini. Yeah, that's definitely true. And in this case, um, it's also true. Both the Canadian and American models start at just under $27,000. And that's for a three-cylinder front-wheel drive model. Now that's um, that. I mean, let's back that up a bit. So mm-hmm. you said twenty-seven thousand for that money. Mm-hmm. How many SUVs can you buy? Uh, I don't mean many. all at once. I just mean <laughs> if you were to look at the. <laughs> Let me get my calculator. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, if you were to look at the field of of what's in that price range and what's under that price range, there's an every, astounding every, yeah everything. everything. There's an astounding number an astounding number of vehicles. 
Okay. Um, the, the way I put this is um, it sits right between the subcompact crossover segments, um, the mainstream ones and the premium ones. So a an American, sorry, in the U.S., um, the Honda HRV starts at around twenty thousand dollars, and that so that I would consider that the mainstream segment, the HRV. And uh, I think Manuel can, can talk about the HRV offers um, in, in that in that type of vehicle. It's a very practical vehicle. Uh, I think it has a nice interior. Uh, it doesn't drive particularly good, particularly well. It and, don't drive good, and I don't rat good either. I don't talk very swell either. Um, it's uh, but it's a, it's a car that has a lot of um, a lot of practicality. It's a it's a hiked up uh, fit, so it seems like it maximizes every every inch of interior volume. That's what I think about the HRV. And then the other hand, other end of the of the mini uh, countryman pricing is something like the Mercedes GLA, which is around thirty five thousand dollars. That's where it starts. Um, and that car actually has very limited interior space and practicality, um, but has a nice, powerful two-liter four-cylinder engine, um, a, a dual-clutch transmission, and uh, very nice styling. Although the equipment level that it comes with at that price point is is not is is nothing that I'd I'd be excited about. Well, so that's know, where I like the Countryman. The Countryman right now sits in between those two vehicles. Sorry, I don't mean to cut you off. That's okay. Um, I'm so used to it. Oh, uh, <laughs> um, so the, the, the countryman sits between those two vehicles and offers a ton of equipment and it features, uh, a lot of options for, for buyers, um, to, to pick and choose from. So I think it really, it really blends the two worlds of mainstream subcompact crossover and luxury subcompact crossovers. See, it's interesting that that's, that's your perspective because when I look at the, the countryman and at that price point, I'm forced to broaden my horizons and look at much larger, more practical, and equally fuel-efficient vehicles uh, like the Ford Escape, mm-hmm. um, the the CRV, which I believe is right around that price, mm-hmm. the uh, Rav4 from Toyota. These are outstanding cars. Or sorry, SUVs, crossovers, whatever you want to call them. They have tons of interior room. The pricing is is good for in terms of value. You have uh, a range of drivetrains to choose from. You have a lot of tech features, safety stuff, infotainment stuff, and standard. Yeah, no, not not necessarily okay. standard, but available. But what I'm saying, it, it, I mean, that Countryman at twenty seven thousand, the starting price is not going to have a bunch of standard gear either. I would. I'll tell you what it has standard. What are you, okay. are you ready for this? Yes. Okay, we've got a sunroof. We've got leatherette, which is kind of like leather. <laughs> well, I assume you can't get cloth in any mini. Is that is that right? I think that's true. Yeah. Okay. Um, we've got a, that push button start. I guess I don't know if that's considered a feature to some people. I don't know if it, I don't think it is. Um, although maybe it is because it means you don't have to take your key out of your pocket. What do you think? Well, how would you consider that? It depends. Do I have to push a button to open the door? Or does the door open when I just pull? You have a button on the door. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. a feature. Uh, we have a 6.5 inch infotainment system. We have a rear view camera. We have parking sensors. We have so that's cool. I love that. First of all, a camera and parking sensors together. Um, we have automatic headlights and rain sensing wipers. What do you think? Well, I mean, it's not bad, but it's not mm-hmm. amazing. Um, but for a base vehicle, yeah, that's that's a decent amount of equipment. Uh, but here's the thing: it's still what? How, do you, how much cargo space is there inside? Do you, uh, do you know? In terms of numbers, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head. Is it bigger or smaller than a Golf? Oh, it's. Uh, I would say it's. Uh, it's pretty comparable to a Golf. So I would say that's. Uh, and the Golf has fantastic cargo space, though. Yes. I mean, it's one of the best in the compact 
uh, car segment. I just don't um, under I don't I don't necessarily see the buyer for this vehicle uh, it, it, unless it's someone who absolutely has to have a mini and absolutely has to have a bigger mini. Um, how does it drive? It drives very good. It drives very well. It's probably the it, w- it would drive probably the best out of any uh, cross crossover and subcompact crossover that I've I've driven lately. The only edgier vehicle, the more responsive vehicle, is something that you've just brought up, which was the Escape. Um, but I haven't driven a 2017 model in, in yet, and I heard that they kind of dulled it down a little bit. So you're saying this is better to drive than a CX-5? Uh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. And that becomes that's because it comes with that uh, nice turbocharged powertrain, which gives a lot of torque down low. Um, and it has a very, very nice, very heavy, very German uh, steering um, with a little bit of feedback. I think me and you have both complained about feedback, especially in some BMWs, but uh, this feels pretty solid. Well, honestly, I'm really surprised to hear uh, this positive um, uh, impression that the car has made on you. I've, I've always kind of seen the the the, the Countryman as, I don't know, not, not an abomination, but mm-hmm. just like, you know when Fiat came out with the... Fiat tried to do kind of the same thing that Mini did by expanding the lineup, but keeping the, the genetics and the DNA all intact. Mm-hmm. And it, it wasn't super successful. They had the the Fiat 500L, and then there was the... I can't remember what the crossover is called. The X. The X, okay. The 500X, not the X. But so yes. I always saw... <laughs> I always saw kind of the Countryman as like the Fiat 500X, which was mm-hmm. I not exactly a successful branding exercise I, I i like the way you you put that because many said the same thing to us they said after the launch of their the first countryman which was in 2010 um they were they were confl- they were conf- they were conflicted and a lot of people were conflicted what is this vehicle it's very awkward looking it's um a little too stiff to be a, 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 a crossover um and it's a little too big to be a mini right um, I think that's the way a lot of people would, would perceive this vehicle. What do you think? Is that a good way to describe the first the, the, the Countryman as you know it? Oh, definitely. The new one is now softer, like a crossover, um, but still has that um, modern, uh, comfortable way of driving that uh, most Minis have, which also have that sense of urgency thanks to those turbocharged engines that they're offered as well. So I think they've really matured and smoothed out um, the, the Mini lineup and the Countryman fits in um, right now. So, so kind of moving past the, the car itself, what was the trip like? What, what was it like in England? Okay, so uh, I drove. Um, it was very, it was very full. We had lots of activities to do, uh, including some time spent um, with classic minis. Although classic, I'll put in quotation marks because I'm not sure 1996 is particularly classic. <laughs> what do you think of that? Is well, that, it is. It is during sense? the second golden age of hip hop, so um, I'm willing to let it slide. <laughs> okay. So we didn't get a chance to drive them, but we did. We were given a tour of London in these tiny cars. And uh, a lot of people, when I told them that I was going to be doing a driving tour of London, were uh, were kind of like they scrunched up their face. They looked at me like, "Are you out of your mind? Have you ever been to to um, London? It's packed. There's so much con- uh, traffic and congest- congestion and people. Um, and plus, there's a lot of things you have to take out. You have to jump out of the car, take photos of things. Um, how are you gonna How are you gonna do that in in a in a in a car? Well, let me tell you, there is uh, probably it's probably the best car to do it in is, is a mini, um, because it's small, it's compact, it's little, it's it's peppy, it can fit in traffic, no problem. Uh, ours was um, one of those interesting Targa models with a, a retractable roof, not a convertible, but like a like a sunroof that 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 folds back, so I could take a look up and see uh, some of the sights. Some of the big stuff like the um, London Eye, 
and um, Big Ben. So at least when we're driving past them, I'm not staring at some other cars' wheels because apparently other cars have become quite big. <laughs> um, parking it was no problem too. The, the the driver could squeeze it anywhere. He could make it down some alleyways, which I would I would have never tried in my on my own or even in my own car. Um, and uh, people and other motorists really like stopped and let this car through. Um, wherever it was trying to go, which is really, really cool. It shows the sort of respect that everyone has for this iconic vehicle. And I think that's that's truly what the Mini is, right? It's the people around there know what it is. They can tell what it is. They, they even want, they waved at us, they smiled, they took pictures. It was uh, it was very interesting. And did you do any other, uh, any other cool stuff while you were there? Like, wh- where did you drive the uh, Countryman? Yeah, we drove the Countryman uh, on the roads um, between... Um, Oxford and Oxfordshire or Oxfordshire, uh, so all over um, the country countryside of, of the UK, and uh, we also went off-roading in the vehicles. Although the off-road uh, course that they had set up for us was just a, a mud pit, really, it wasn't anything um, particularly challenging, and something that I would I'd probably be able to do it be able to do in my car if I wanted to get it dirty. Um, was, this, was that your first time driving on the wrong side of the road? It uh, it is. It was my first time driving on the other side of the road, and with the with the not the first time driving with the wheel on the other side of the road, but at least now on the appropriate side um, of the traffic. And that wasn't so much of an issue, but the roads in the UK were quite narrow. And uh, when you're trying to figure out the dimensions of your of your passenger side, which is now on the other side of the vehicle, it was uh, that that was a little intimidating, and uh, it took some getting used to. I can imagine. But other things like, um, honestly, crossing traffic was not um, a big deal. Uh, I didn't have that big of, a, of an issue with it. And uh, the traffic circles or roundabouts are, uh, are easy to navigate and people, are, people totally get it. It's, uh, it's very smooth. It's very interesting as well. Almost every intersection or so many intersections in the city and um, in the countryside uh, are not stop signs, but are rather yield um, signs. So if there's no one there, you just continue on your way. Which is a very interesting uh, difference in comparison to here, where uh, almost everything is a stop sign. You have to come to a complete stop, or else uh, a policeman will jump out of a bush and give you a ticket. Are there a lot of bushes in the Toronto area? Uh, yeah, <laughs> and some home- some policemen dress up as homeless people to give people tickets. What? You've never heard of that? No, you really. I didn't realize that Ontario was so different. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? Like, what else? What else do people? dress up as for reasons that i would never understand uh, i'm not sh- i'm not sure of all of the dressing uh schemes here but um the countryman was really was really an interesting vehicle um in comparison uh to, to what i was anticipating i was anticipating a bigger vehicle something that was not going to be um fun uh something that was going to be a little unwieldy and boring to drive but um we had the countryman s which features a four-cylinder turbocharged engine that makes just under 200 horsepower um it's uh, it's they're getting heavy. That's my problem with these vehicles. They're getting um, well around the, the 3,300 pound mark, 3,500 to 3,500 pound mark, and um, it's that's rough. That's tough, man. That's like, heavy yeah. for 200 horsepower, man. Yeah. And I yeah. find that a lot of car companies are starting to disguise this weight by uh, pushing the torque down as low as they can from mm-hmm. these turbocharged engines. And so, uh, you know, around town it feels fine. But if you ever try to drive in a spirited manner, I mean, you're not, you're not going to do that in a, in, a, in a countryman. But you really start to notice the lack of top end. Absolutely. Uh, that, was, uh, that was my experience here. Um, it was not a speedy vehicle on, on the highways, but it was fun to drive at lower speeds. We'll, we'll say um, between uh, 45 and 55 miles per hour. Well, um, I, it, I also drove something last week that was a little on the heavy side, 
Hmm. Um, it's uh, the 2017 Dodge Challenger GT all-wheel drive. Okay, is, now this is this is a muscle car with all-wheel drive. Is it the first muscle car with all-wheel drive? I'm not so so sure it's really a muscle car period because oh. in order well no no hear me out this is not a knock against the car but in order to get the all-wheel drive system you can only buy the v6 engine which produces 305 horsepower and 268 pound feet of torque what uh, yes hold on what that what do you bums me out well i mean if you look at the charger which is the the platform twin of the challenger it's the same situation all-wheel drive is now v6 only uh, in canada for for retail customers so um, you also have to get the eight-speed automatic, which is the only way you can get a V6 uh, spec from in the Challenger. You, you can't get a manual V6. It's been like that for a number of years. But the reason, the reason, you know, 305 horsepower sounds great, and it's it's very good for daily driving. Don't get me wrong. But the reason I kind of push the the V6 Challenger into grand touring territory rather than muscle car territory is because it weighs over 4,000 pounds. It's Whoa. a very heavy, yes, it's a very heavy vehicle, and uh, part of that is the extra 200 pounds that comes with the all-wheel drive system. So it's not light on its feet, and it's not intended to be light on its feet, um, but, you know, Chrysler's really pushing the muscle car aspect, all-wheel drive muscle car, because it's good marketing, and, you know, there are other very muscular versions of the Challenger out there, so that there's that brand identity that they're, they're, they're tapping into. But it was funny because um, at the presentation, we had you and I had this conversation earlier today, but at the presentation that morning, we were in Portland, Maine, to drive the vehicle because they wanted to give us kind of a snowy area to drive in, and they mentioned that this is the first all-wheel drive muscle car to ever have been built. But that's actually not true uh, because way back in 1966, Jensen took the Interceptor, which was actually powered by a Chrysler engine, a three, 383 cubic inches, I believe. I'm not sure if there's a 440 version. But um, they took that car and they extended the wheelbase by about five inches. And they added an all-wheel drive system, which was really, really challenging. Uh, the, the Gen they called it the Jensen FF because it was, uh, I believe, Fergus it was a Ferguson all-wheel drive system. It was the first production all-wheel drive car, believe it or not. Uh, they beat Audi to market by 14 years, I think. And the car was very limited number because they could only make it right-hand drive uh, the way that the system was set up. The, if they tried to make a left-hand drive model, the the steering and, and various aspects of the differential and all sorts of stuff were just in the wrong place. Like it would intrude into the passenger compartment. So they only built a small number because their biggest market was the United States with the Interceptor. And all, they couldn't market that car there at all. So it was kind of limited to, you know, Britain and Europe where having a huge monster V8 was not the best idea uh, for for a daily driver. But uh, anyway, yeah, I, I realize it's kind of a bit of a ramble about the, the that is a good, that, That's a fun ramble, though. That's a fun ramble. It's an entertainment, entertaining and educational ramble. Um, but why don't you tell me a little bit about how this car, you know, does its thing? Is it a is it is it unique in its way in its own way or is it just like a V6 charger? Uh, yes, all-wheel drive charger. In terms of it being unique, it's yes and no. So okay. the 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 all-wheel drive system, the v, the drivetrain, it's exactly the same as the charger. So you can send 100 100% of the horsepower goes to the rear wheels at any given moment until the computer decides it's time to shuttle torque to the front end. And the re that happens based on a number of factors. I at t certain temperatures, I believe it's around 40 degrees, it starts to automatically just put torque to the front. Uh, wheel spin obviously is something that it'll if, if it detects wheel spin it'll do the same thing um, 
and if you, you know, I couldn't get, I don't remember the exact torque split that I got from Dodge, but I can tell you that I saw several people bury this car in snowbanks on the uh, the handling course we were driving on. We went to a place called Club Motorsports in Tamworth, New Hampshire, which is about an hour and a half or an hour outside of Portland. And um, when they were backing the vehicle out, the rear wheels were not moving at all. The front wheels were spinning, trying to push the car out. So the cars had determined that it couldn't send any torque to the back of the car and was only sending it to the front. And they got out of the, the snow. I didn't, there were very few, I think I only saw one person get completely stuck. Uh, the system worked really well. Um, but in terms of it being different from the Charger, the suspension on the car is a little weird. They uh, decided to use the Dodge Charger Police Pack suspension as their starting point for the GT. And I'm not sure whether that's because of the extra weight of the all-wheel drive system or whether it's because they had the word G the letters GT on the side of the car and they figured oh we better make it you know a little bit sportier but I can tell you this compared to the SXT the base V6 ch uh, Challenger this thing bounces all over the road oh okay uh like uh, frost heaves potholes di differences in the pavement you feel everything it I was really surprised part of that might have been the fact that we were riding on all season tires they used the same tires that you get in the from the showroom they didn't put winters on for the event so the tires could have been it was right around freezing so the tires could have been stiff and that could have been contributing to it but I was really surprised it it was way rougher than I thought it would be interesting um, that's a little. That's a. That's not a. That's not a very nice thing to hear. I mean, in rough and not in a sporty way, right? Like it's it's, no, it's the, bouncy. The, that's the way you yeah, describe it. Yeah, it's bouncy. Exactly. The car is not sporty. Um, mm. Most people are buying V6 Challengers. That's their their most popular model, and uh, I'd say this is a good commuter car. I mean, okay. it, it. You know, the fuel mileage is reasonable. Um, it's huge inside. You have tons of room. It's a comfortable car. When you're not on a bumpy road, <laughs> like when we were on the highway, we we drove on the interstate for a little bit, and you don't notice it. It's not particularly bouncy on in that uh, scenario. Where you do notice it is on the you know back back roads or anything. If here in Montreal, it would be all over the city. You would be feeling it. And uh, maybe if you put proper winters on, it wouldn't be as bad because the tires wouldn't be as stiff. But uh, I was surprised by that. But you know, we had it on a little handling course. And how was, was that? Did you have fun? It, yeah, once I figured out how to turn off the traction control, it, it was fun. Uh, it, it's interesting because the GTs all come with Super Track Pack okay. <laughs> with the performance pages, which is a little weird, and a launch control uh, system, okay. I think, uh, which, again, a little bit strange considering it doesn't really have the power to require that kind mm. of uh, uh, electronic assistance, shall we say, off the line. But um, it, I had it sideways uh, for you know way too much time. It was lots of fun doing that, blasting around in the snow and... Uh, the the people who from the Team O'Neill Rally School were there, also based in New Hampshire, and they were running the show. And they're, they're good people. White Knox um, was was there, and um, really enjoy anything that those guys are involved with. But um, it's funny because I didn't even think about using the launch control. I ended up in a in a drag race uh, later on that day at the very <laughs> end of the day because uh, they what? had a set again two in the snow. Yeah, in the snow. So they had uh, so Tamworth just opened this summer. They just paved the track, and they had a set of snowmobiles, like uh, maybe like ten snowmobiles, and you could go out in a line, and they would take you around the track so you could check it out firsthand. But we weren't we weren't driving on the big track. We were driving on a smaller karting track. Okay. Um, but just beside this, on the front straight, they had set up like a braking exercise. And I asked Wyatt if I could drag race one of the snowmobiles in the Challenger. 
because I thought it would be fun. And uh, I wanted to do a little video for um, uh, Roadkill because that's kind of their jam. <laughs> and uh, he said, sure. And we, we hooked it up. And I went up against a Skidoo uh, or a Skidoo that had uh, – it was 120 horsepower. And it weighed 430 pounds. So that's like Whoa. exactly 10 times less <laughs> than the Challenger, pretty much. <laughs> and he smoked me. It was it was not even close. We did two yeah. runs. I the can second, imagine that. How no, much it was, did you say that? 120. Yeah, I can imagine it's that. That's, three and a half. No way that thing's going to lose to you. No, especially not with the tread. You yeah. know, like he's got that track. And I've got all-season tires. Um, the second run, he gave me like two car legs before he took off, which caught me by surprise. It, it's funny because the, the skidoo uh, tops out at 45 miles an hour. Oh, okay. So he thought that I would catch him, but the track was so short. It was like maybe an eighth of a mile, maybe less. <laughs> I had to slam the brakes on like well before the finish oh, line no. or, you know, or risk dying. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, the bottom line is that snowmobile has three and a half pounds per horsepower and the Challenger has 13 and a half. <laughs> And um, that makes a big difference. That's a really interesting, you know, thing that uh, that that Dodge has, has has unveiled and given to the world. What's the price premium uh, over a regular V6? Do you know? They didn't really talk about it. Okay. Um, so I do not know. Then the other question I have is... That, oh, wait, wait, are, are wait, you... wait. Maybe oh, they did. Maybe they did. Maybe they did. Just a second. Like, continue, continue your thought. I'm going to take a look. Well, the thing that was that bummed me out is I thought this was going to be a V8 model, and I think that's where um, a lot of the excitement is for me. I was expecting a nice beef, a, a true Challenger. I mean, no offense to anyone with a V6 Challenger or a V6 uh, muscle car of any, of any sort, but I think uh, when it comes to getting one of these cars, the V8 model is the one that you always have to to get that's the one to aspire to well uh, especially especially with a car as heavy as the yeah, challenger absolutely it's not uh, like it's not like the mustang where you know the v6 was was better capable of giving you a good time because of the uh you know more modest proportions of the mm -hmm. car and the other thing i had in, in mind which uh, i brought up today with you at some point um this you're telling me that this car is is heavier and less powerful than an all-wheel drive coupe that they that Dodge made like uh, stopped making about 15 years ago, which is the Stealth, the Dodge Stealth twin turbo all-wheel all drive. Well, not not what 15 years ago, 20 years ago now, I think. Oh jeez, okay. I think the Mitsubishi one went into the 2000s at some point, but yeah. Um, which was yeah, one of my favorite cars. I thought it was a very sleek vehicle. It uh, it had all-wheel drive as well, and it had uh, a twin-turbo V6 that was making about 320 horsepower in the later years uh, or the last years of, uh, of its run. Um, but it was a very complicated car, and the I think the weight balance was never in its favor. I think it was no, very, it was very heavy. Over the, over the, but I think it was heavy over the front axle, which is not, I don't think is, is something that would happen with the modern uh, vehicle. I think they're much more balanced. But well, this it, still, it's still lighter than whatever the Challenger is. Are you sure about that? Because that was a heavy car. Yeah, man. You I'm, sure it's not I'm 4,000? I'm almost certain that in the last model years of the Stealth, it was around 3,800 pounds. All right. Well, that's, you know, that's, you know, within 300 pounds of the, uh, of the Challenger. Yeah, but 15, horse, 15 more horsepower. I think that's All right. a fair balance. All right. All right. 
Okay. Did you tell me? Any, I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't know. On, on the pricing yet? I, no, I don't have anything. But I'm okay. just. I'm just trying to see where you're going here. Are you saying that that Chrysler should make a uh, instead of going retro with their muscle car styling, they should really be going retro with their '90s styling and make <laughs> with like their a Mitsubishi? Yeah. Their Mitsubishi rebrand? No, I don't. I'm not saying that. I'm just bringing up my one of my favorite cars, which is uh, actually the 3000 GT. Um, which is a very neat vehicle because it was kind of a, uh, ahead of its time. And I think we're kind of seeing something a little bit, a little bit like that right now. Well, okay. Um, speaking of ahead of its time, um, I also, uh, on the way down to Portland, I drove a, uh, another all-wheel drive vehicle. Oh, yes. Uh, and one of my favorites. Um, uh, the the all-new, or not all-new, the, the brand-new engine uh, within the 2017 Volvo V60 Polestar. That's a turbocharged and supercharged wagon because that engine is everywhere now in the Volvo lineup. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all-wheel drive, as I mentioned, has a and it comes with an eight-speed automatic transmission, which is a big, big, big improvement over the six-speed that was in last year's model. And that that transmission came with what was a, a five-cylinder engine. I don't remember how large it was. Was it two and a half? Um, Wait, the old the old Polestar did not come with a five-cylinder. It came with a six. Oh, the six. Sorry. Mm-hmm. So it's the the the, the T6 engine. Mm-hmm. And was that two and a half liters? Nope, three. Three, really? Yep. Okay. Um, a great engine, terrible transmission. It was, uh, it, it had trouble hunting gears all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't really know what ratio was best for whatever given situation, and it really took away from the car. Um, and that's all. That's all in the rearview mirror now. It's uh, the the eight speed is much much better. It, but you know, as much as I like the concept behind the Polestar, and, and the one I'm driving is uh, very bright blue, and Sammy's going to 100% disagree with a lot of what I'm about to say. I th- um, the problem is I think we've also covered this car in the past, I, when I had it uh, way back in November, I think. And yes. uh, I think my readers will remember I was very, um, I was really positive, really sweet on this vehicle. Um, and it, was, it was probably one of my favorite vehicles I had um, all of last year. So I can't wait to hear what your your take on it is and, uh, and how you, you choose to be. How do, how do you choose to contrast me right now? <laughs> so the, the couple of things that stood out, I mean, we both agree that the interior is not up to par. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of a general Volvo problem for everything that doesn't have 90 in its name. They, they're still playing catch up. Uh, the outside looks great, and mm-hmm. the interior looks like it was designed 15 years ago, which it probably was. Um, but moving past that, the, the car... It features an adjustable suspension system from Olin, but this is, I'm so glad that you're bringing this up because um, I this is something that I did not dive too deep in um, with my research and my writing on on the car. So please go ahead, talk to me about this really interesting um, adjustable suspension setup. Basically, they're adjustable shocks, and you get 15 levels of stiffness. But the catch is, if you want to adjust them. In the back, you have to remove panels above the rear wheels and, you know, turn turn a, a, uh, there's a knob. And there's a tool you can use from Pulsar or you can do it on your own. Um, but it's, it's, there's a tiny space where you, you can reset it to zero and then count the clicks and go up to 15. 15 being the stiffest, one being the <laughs> softest. At the front of the car, you have to turn the wheel all the way to one side and then reach up with your hand. And it's at the bottom of the shock or, or near the bottom of the shock. You can do it on the ground if you want to, but you know when you can't do it on the ground? In the middle of the winter, which is when I was driving the car. I'm not going to reach up into the... First of all, on the ground, in the slush and the snow, reach up to the dirtiest part of the vehicle and try to make these adjustments in the cold. Adjustable shocks are fine. Manual, Manually adjustable shocks, that's something I expect to see on a more of a 
an aftermarket car, uh, an aftermarket suspension, and I expect it to be at the top of the shock so I can pop the hood and do it from there, not underneath. Like, it's just unusual. And if you look at all the other vehicles in its price point, which is the other issue with the, the V60 Polestar, mm-hmm. they also make... Um, it's $60,000 in the States and it's $70,000 in Canada. Mm-hmm. There's not a car in that price bracket that doesn't have a button on the dash that you push to change the shock settings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a hard sell. Uh, this is a very specific buyer already. But if you're going to price your car at the same price as, like, what, an M3? How much does an M3 start at? Yeah, it would be around the, the cost of an M3, which makes uh, 400, I think, 425 horsepower. Um and you're talk, you want to know U.S. or Canadian numbers? Canadian, uh, U.S. numbers. U.S. numbers. Uh, yeah, it should be around the, the... Actually, the M3 should cost a little bit more. Let, okay. me, let me take one quick look at, at it right now. And so this makes it, for great radio, right? Well, you mentioned that uh, what, it's over 400 horsepower in the M3, and it's, what, 340 in the, uh, in the Pulsar? Uh, yeah, I think it's actually close to 360. 360, okay. It's a very quick car, That's that's for sure. Off the line, um, I've had some people tell me that they feel that the V6 was better for low-end torque, um, but okay, I didn't so, really... So this is... Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you, um, but you asked for the pricing of the M3. It starts at 64000 um, So you're thinking you're for just a few thousand bucks more in, in U, the US, you're getting um, a good chunk more horsepower, maybe more 50 more, a little over 50 more horsepower. And, and you're getting a, a better executed car, I think. Although, you know, it pains me to say that because I'm not an M3 fan. Mm-hmm. I'm not a fan of that drivetrain. But there's no denying that it feels uh, that I don't have to reach up under the car and, and adjust the shock absorbers. You know, like I don't – that's that's a really – that's a tuner car mentality. And, and Polestar, they make tuner cars, mm-hmm. uh, It's it, it's which is fine. But at that price point, I mean, come on, man. Okay, there's two things that that make the Polestar stand out, especially in comparison to an M3. And I'm telling you, I've had this conversation in my head uh, because I absolutely adore the Polestar uh, Volvo. For starters, it's a wagon. You can't get an M3 wagon here in, in America. And um, in fact, any any vehicle, any of these performance vehicles, I don't think you can get. Even the RS4 doesn't. I, first of all, I don't think it exists yet. And... Um, who knows if it'll come in a wagon format. But when you're looking at the AMGs, the M's, and the and these RS vehicles, the Polestar is the only one that comes um, in this body style. You can't even get a WRX wagon anymore. Yeah, geez. So um, that's a major that's a major thing to me. It's it's almost like we're talking about different vehicles um, in terms of in terms of the comparison. But on the other hand, the M3 is still available with a manual transmission. And I know we said that the the automatic in the Volvo is good. Um, don't you just want to grab it and do it all yourself too? I would I would prefer a manual in mm. the in the Volvo, uh, but for for more than just the grab it and do it myself reason, because <clears throat> the other kind of weird thing about the uh, V60 Polestar is there's there's no sport mode really. There kind mm-hmm. of is. There kind of is. It's an all or nothing thing where yeah. you, you, you take the shifter and you slam it over to the left and you get, you know, normally in most cars that would put you into a sport mode for the transmission yeah. where you would get quicker shifts. It would hold gears longer. But in the uh, the V60, it, it also gives you better throttle response. It controls everything. Uh, it backs off the stability control just a little bit and uh, into a sport mode. And it's, it's the universal sport mode button. Mm-hmm. This is problematic for me on the drive down because I came down uh, uh, State Route 26 from Quebec, which is a two-lane that goes through Dixville Notch State Park. 
and the, the the road conditions were in some areas abysmal it was very very snowy uh slush ice on the roads what i wanted to do was turn off the stability control uh or at least back it off so that i would have some stability but at the same time um i'd be able to slide the car around a little bit which was you know it was fun and it was those kind of conditions but here's the thing if i wanted to do that i had to also stay in fourth gear the entire time <laughs> because it made it forced me over into there there's no button for sport traction control it's all at once so i'm i'm forced into every other sport setting at the same time you can turn traction control completely off yeah uh by and, going but- into when you ever you do that, it actually says this is the sport mode. Like that's what it actually says when you hit when you when you hover over that option on on the infotainment system. It's like ESC off. This is this is sport mode. Well, it is completely off though. Yeah, it's not sport mode because I I, I had it very very sideways uh, last nice. night actually. Um, it, although it, it does, there did, there did seem to be some weird intervention a couple of times when I was driving it, and the turbos got really hot really quickly. Or the turbo, sorry. Um, the turbo. <laughs> yes. In any case, so Can, uh, that kind of comes back to my whole execution thing. I, as much as I'm not a fan of the M3, it, it feels like a more complete car. And at the price point, the V60 Polestar needs to be more of a complete car and less of a tuner car. I think maybe if it was 50 grand, um, I would be a little less uh, incisive with my comments. Mm-hmm. But... I don't know. I don't. I still don't feel that way. I mean, I think one of the more important parts of this vehicle is the way that engine revs up. Do you have anything to say about the way it sounds, the way it feels, um, in, especially in comparison to a turbocharged uh, M car, which I don't think is is as engaging as that old V8 was, if you remember. No, that. no. I like. I, I don't. I don't like the M3. I would never <laughs> own one. I mean, that, but don't get me wrong. But would you consider owning a Volvo V60 Polestar? No. Okay. I thought I would until I had this one. Um, I don't want to own it. It's an okay car, but I don't see a pla- like. I don't see a place for it. Like it's. That's crazy. I, I can one hundred percent tell you I would never own it at this price. Yeah. I, I think the Canadian pricing, the seventy thousand dollars, is absolutely absurd. What about the limited edition appeal? This is a very limited vehicle. You can't get uh, very many of them at all. Uh, I think it's even in the hundreds here in North America, and maybe even less than that in Canada. For sure. Does that um, have any appeal? Does that that's justification for the price? I think. I I don't think so. Uh, okay. You know, it, it it's it's weird because here I am. I mean, I'm in the odd position of not defending an all-wheel drive turbocharged and wagon. supercharged. Turbo and supercharged <laughs> uh, wagon. Um, but it's not the chassis. Also, it's okay. But it's not a it's not a razor sharp car. It's not a car that you feel super connected to. Um, man, what I, would I say if, if I think that it would be better in the, in the dry? If it was better with performance tires, it probably had winter tires, right? Yeah, it had absolutely terrible winter tires. It had oh, yeah. Pirelli Sato Zeros, which oh, are God, great if there's n- it was great if there's nothing <laughs> on the road, but if there's any kind of snow, then forget about it. It's okay. just it, they they they're no good at channeling slush and water. I, I had it in the dry. Um, I believe I had it with the performance tires that are uh, standard on the vehicle, which I, I think are Michelin um, Super Sports, Pilot Super Sports. And uh, I loved it. I, I couldn't come away with I, I didn't. This is one of the few cars that I really didn't want to give back. Um, the biggest problems I had with it 
was it guzzled gas. It really, maybe it was the way I was driving it, but it, I had to fill it up a number of times. And no, around town, it's around town. It's it's really bad. Um, on the highway, I was seeing nine point nine liters per hundred kilometers, mm-hmm. and uh, <clears throat> I think overall, if you include like the the two lane that I drove, it was like twenty miles per gallon, average. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not great for a tiny car. <laughs> it's not great for a four cylinder, but it's it's better yeah. than a six, I think, than a turbocharged six uh, that makes three hundred sixty horsepower. But it's not great for a four cylinder. It's just weird. Like, why why am I not into it? I don't know. Like, it's parked outside right now. I think it looks great and it's mm-hmm. it's fun. But it's like, at no point am I like, yeah, like I think I think I want to own this. I just I think I want to have one of these. One there day. are so many parts of this car that I just. You're right. It needs to be more complete to be a, a far more um, a far more attractive car. But there are so many parts of this car that I absolutely love. And there's no like gray spot, gray like. Eh, it's kind of good in this way. It's either good. There's parts that are very good, and there's parts that are like this. If, this needs to if it was if it was ten thousand dollars less, You'd I would it. be, I would forgive a lot more. So but like that's, you can't yeah, bring a tuner, feel, yeah. You can't bring a tuner car to the luxury performance market and price it like a luxury performance car. And as much as I don't want an M3, pricing this at M3 levels means you have to compare it to the M3. I mean, there's just there's no. I mean, yeah, there's no M3 wagon, et cetera, et cetera. It's it's unique in its spot, which is true. But I've you said, know, I mean. I've said this to you. Those cars have, I mean, the M vehicles have, and um, and I haven't driven an RS vehicle in a while, but I understand to have the same problem, which is they've lost a lot of their personality. And I think that this Volvo, with its contrasts, with this, this is very good. This is like what's wrong with the, what happened to the interior of this vehicle? Um, like this thing, you look at it. Um, the way it drives, the way it revs up, it has a lot more personality than some of these other German cars that have become more complete. Um, and I think we've always we've always said this character is really just co- like uh, flaws in cars that we kind of grow to appreciate. And this is one of that. This is one of those cars that has an old school um, vibe to it. What do you think of that? What do you think of that thesis? Maybe I would be more into buying the character if um, it was cheaper. <laughs> no, 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 no. If if it was more engaging to drive. Okay. Like I was on some very fun roads, mm-hmm. and it was okay. But it didn't. It didn't leave me wanting to drive it more. I wasn't like, yeah, let's let, let's do that again. I didn't really have that thought. I I can't believe I'm saying this about this car. It makes it sound like I hate it, and I don't hate it. And I'm going to give it a positive review because, well, I'm going to give it a positive review with all the caveats that I mentioned about yeah. the pricing. And, You're and, right and about stiffness. the price. The pricing is uh, and the interior. I can't. I, those two things are are. You can't offer a car at that price with that interior. That's my. I think that's my just. That's my problem. My biggest problem. I think I might just like the concept of the Polestar <laughs> more than, you know, other stuff. Like the the, the, the actual execution of it. It's, it's like I like the idea of the Polestar being in the world. But uh, anyway. Okay. <laughs> I think you're getting really conflicted right now. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm going to leave you to go and contemplate that. What do you think? Is that okay? Um... Sure. All right. We should say goodbye to the listeners first. And maybe we should give them a heads up on what's going on um, next week. Well, next week, I'm going to Nevada to drive the Ram Power Wagon, something else that's very, very large and heavy. Fantastic. (laughs) But in a very different scenario, we're going to be going off-road. And myself, I haven't even looked at my schedule yet, uh, so (laughs) take it easy on that. (laughs) I'll I'll report back next Friday. (laughs) 
Okay, and uh, for everyone else, if you uh, want to find out what Sammy's doing, you can also always send him a tweet mm-hmm. at, uh, at Sammy underscore ha, like you're laughing, or uh, you can get in touch with me at Hunting Benjamin, or using the emails at Benjamin Hunting, uh, sorry, Benjamin at BenjaminHunting.com. And uh, Sammy, where can people find the podcast if they want to listen to other episodes? If they want to listen to other episodes, they can find us on iTunes or Google Play Music on the podcast section there. Or they can go to Unnamed Automotive Podcast. And uh, when they do that, they will go to our SoundCloud account, uh, our SoundCloud page. And sorry, did I say unnamedautomotivepodcast.com? Because that's what I I don't think you I don't think you did, but now you have. I have. And uh, that's where you'll go to find uh, our SoundCloud uh, page. And you'll see all of our previous episodes. And you can subscribe right there, too. So once again, thank you for listening, and we will talk to you next week. Bye, everyone.